Welcome to Mihinte on Air on 100.5 and 790 News Radio WSGW and online WSGW.com. Now, here is your host, Larry Rodarte. Good evening, good evening. Happy April, everyone. We are almost into officially spring. The weather's been wonderful, it's a lot warmer. And today, we're going to talk about baseball on Mihinte on Air. Over at the Castle Museum, there is currently a Latino in baseball exhibit highlighting contributions of the Latino baseball player. The Smithsonian Museum has these traveling exhibits that go around the country, and this one, Play Ball, in the Barrios and in the Big Leagues, made its national debut right here in Saginaw. Kudos to the Castle Museum for doing that. It's free, and it explores the Latino baseball history in our nation but also locally. It has a, a local component. Today, my guest is a historian to baseball. Not so much because he studied it, but because he lived it. There's a well-known picture up at El Rancho Grande restaurant of the El Gaito baseball team from the early 50s. And there, center stage, is Mr. Joaquin Diaz as a bat boy. And I think he's probably about maybe 10 or 12 years old. He is our guest today. On mi gente on air. Welcome, Joaquin. Welcome. Thank you, Larry. It's good to be here. Yes, and I know that you have been getting a lot of attention uh, because of this exhibit, and the Smithsonian is going to have you speaking in regard to the Luna baseball field. And I think that's what I wanted to concentrate on first because Luna baseball field out in Indian Town was a field that the Latino baseball players in our area, the Great Lakes Bay region, it might have been called the, the Tri-City area then in those days in the 50s, but Joaquin Diaz, his father, played was very instrumental in playing a part in developing this baseball field. Let me have him tell you a little bit about Francisco Diaz, his father, and Jose Luna. Yes, uh, uh, Mr. Luna owned the property in Indian Town, and uh, my dad was the one that uh, was approached on sponsoring a Latino baseball team, which became known as Los Gallitos. They uh, tried to reserve space at Hoyt Park, but there wasn't any uh, time slots available for the players. So Mr. Luna suggested that they build a baseball diamond on his property in Indian Town. So they uh, they reviewed the area and decided uh, where they would have their baseball diamond. And the first thing they decided was that they had to level the playing field, the actual baseball diamond. It was hilly and uneven. So they said, well, what we need to do is to level the playing field in order to get started with a baseball diamond. Smoothing it out. They needed to smooth it out, right? Yes, leveling it out. Yes. So they had to, um, uh, they requested uh, dirt from the farmers in the area so that they could level the uh, the playing field, making a, a baseball diamond. And uh, they, they, uh, they uh, complied and they brought in all this dirt and they proceeded to use a, a, a pickup truck 
a railroad tie with a chain, and they started going in a circle to develop their diamond. And they they finally were able to uh, visualize how their diamond would would actually appear um, after all the work was done. So they were very pleased because it was level and it, it looked beautiful, really. And you and, and you uh, were how old, Joaquin, at this time? Eight years old, maybe seven years old. And you uh, and you remember yeah. this? Oh yes, because I was out there. Oh wow. I was, uh, I went everywhere with my dad. My dad was, uh, would take me not only on wherever he went, uh, but, uh, he had a business and he would take me to the, the candy stores, the grocery stores where, where he was able to purchase, uh, his, his groceries at retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd go to the, the, uh, markets, the fruit markets and the vegetable markets and, well, you know, Joaquin, I, I have yeah. to I have to let the audience know that your father, Francisco Diaz, truly was an entrepreneur in our community way back in the forties, in the fifties. He came from Mexico, and uh, do you know do you know what year he came from Mexico? Actually, it had to be before I would say nineteen forty two for sure, because that's when I was born. Yeah. So he had to come in the, I would say the. The late 30s, 30, maybe. 30s, um, uh, I would say uh, middle 30s, really. Mm-hmm. And, he, 30s. And, he, and he went on to have a grocery store. It was called Diaz Grocery Store. He went on to have a bar. Uh, a, um, what, what was the bar's the name? Mi uh, Ranchito was the first bar. Okay, and then he had the second one, which was more popular. I think people will re- remember. And that was what? Yeah. It was called Las Vegas Bar. The Las Vegas Bar. Now I remember. But but mm-hmm. one of the things that he also did was he helped found the Union Civica in 1945. A group of 11 men came together to advocate for civil rights for Latinos in our community. And Mr. Francisco Diaz uh, was part of that. So, I mean, this is a guy who was an entrepreneur. He advocated for civil rights for Latinos. And he wanted to have this baseball diamond, which would be Luna's baseball field, so that Latino kids could play on this field. Now, one of the things uh, that was known at that time, and Joaquin touched on this a little bit, was that Hoyt Park did not allow Mexicans to play at their field. And this we're talking is the 40s and, and the 50s. So when Mr. Diaz here, Joaquin, said that there were no slots available, he was being very nice about it, right? Well, there was, you know, there was, to be fair, there was time slots that they were looking for on the weekends. And uh, they were already taken, but uh, there weren't any other teams uh, that I recall of that were all Hispanic teams, you know, uh, at that time. Um, but they they decided, Mr. Luna and my dad decided again to get their own fields. Or they they would have uh, every Saturday or Sunday available for baseball at his field. Mm-hmm. So that would also also I'd like to add that not only did he uh, help with the uh, Union Civica, I mean his kind of development. But he also participated in the creation of the First Ward Community Center. Yes, yes. And and he was one of the founders there of the First Ward Community Center, along with uh, my uncle, 
uh, Luis Luis Enriquez. Yes. Um, and so again, I was it was more than just uh, the Spanish speaking organizations. He 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 helped the whole neighborhood. Yeah, yes, and he, he was a worker at the Gray Iron Foundry for many years, correct? Yes, he was. Yes, yes. and, and he, so he, the, he, the influence in that area, in the First Ward District, uh, was very important in those days. Mr. Luna also had uh, a store, I believe it was on 10th in uh, Washington, and then you had Francisco Diaz with his grocery store. And the development of the First Ward uh, back in those days, as we know now, the First Ward is right there on Washington Street, along with around the corner is the Union Civica Mexicana. So these men, they, they worked in the Gray Iron Foundry in Saginaw, and they came here uh, for work, many of them because of migrant work, and then uh, got their American dream job with the foundry with General Motors. So there's a, there's a lot of history. That's, that's why I bought you on this show today, brought you, not bought you, brought you on this show today. And I want you to tell the listeners when they did develop the baseball field, we're back at the field. What happened uh, when the first rains came? The uh, dirt that had been purchased uh, to develop the uh, diamond was supposed to be black dirt. What they sold them was clay. So when they uh, we were they were preparing to on opening day, before opening day, it rained, and they discovered that they did not have black dirt, but that it was clay. So it was a very, very disappointing day because it was mud, per se. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they uh, they regrouped and they made sure that uh, they uh, uh, purchased the, the right amount of, uh, or the correct, um, not only the dirt, black dirt, so that they could redo the field, and they did. They redid the field, and and uh, it was again. It was the beginning of uh, of the development of of a baseball field, which at that particular time was full of corn. Um, there were no fences per se, uh, 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 as as it, because I, I seen Luna's field actually develop from uh, a farmland into a small, small park, mm-hmm. a baseball park. And, and, uh, and along, we do, we do yeah. have pictures of uh, Luna's baseball field, and one of them, like I mentioned, is at El Rancho uh, Grande Restaurant. And uh, at this museum, at the Castle Museum, they do give uh, honor to Francisco Diaz and talk about what we're talking about today with the development of this field. And... You know, Mr. Luna, Jose Luna, who owned the land, and Mr. Francisco Diaz, who uh, was the owner of the baseball team, like you said, Los Caitos, they made contact with other teams across the state from Bay City and Alma, Pontiac, Grand Rapids, Breckenridge, and even Lake Odessa. And I know that I found that uh, amusing when I asked you, Mr. Uh, mm-hmm. Diaz, Lake Odessa, where is that exactly? Well, all I can tell you, it's up north, towards Traverse City. Oh, okay, so that and, far and, away. And, oh, yeah, and then Muskegon also uh, oh. was one of the other ones. Muskegon. So uh, they were, yes, so it was, they were teams uh, up north, but we also went to Pontiac, and actually we went through uh, Elma, Breckenridge, and St. Louis locally and Bay City. So that was the, where they were, a lot of the teams 
uh, actually developed because of the Spanish speaking went, going into those areas uh, to to farm the land to help farmers uh, pick up their crops, and they became residents um, in the area, and thus you know that that's how they were forming teams mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. time. So let's talk about some of the, the the players that you witness now. You're about eight to ten years of age, and you meet people like Mr. Bob Gomez, Roberto Gomez, uh, who was from Detroit and was the, the Los Gaitos' first baseman. What can you remember about Mr. Gomez? Well, he was young. He was young <laughs> and uh, very talented, uh, tall, made an excellent baseball first baseman, um, interested in playing uh, baseball, had a love of the game. Yes, uh, and his friends, all his friends, were also interested in in playing. There's Ralph Guevara, uh, Joe Lopez, Manuel Lopez, uh, Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez, uh, David, Dave, uh, Daniel, I just, I just Daniel, it. Daniel Castaneda. He was a player. Yeah, I don't think he was on Los yeah. Caitos, though. He was on another team. The uh, what? What was the other team? There was well, there was Los Aztecas, there was the Cardinals, uh, there was El Pato, Los Aces, Los Aces, right? So um, there was uh, again, there was various uh, other teams that were uh, being sponsored by different uh, businesses, but uh, the uh, the actual uh, what made the Lagaitos different from other teams is that they became members of a traveling state league. Uh-huh. which again extended again to Pontiac, Grand Rapids, Muskegon, Lake Odessa, Miss uh, Nashville, jo- Flint. Joaquin, yes. I have to stop you there real quick. Can you ask Cruz to stop pounding in the background? <laughs> Is that her that, that we can hear? No, that's that's my carpenter. I'm getting work done on my <laughs> kitchen. Let, oh. me, uh, let, me, let, me, let me move to another room, maybe it's... Yeah, help. yeah. Let, let me ask you too about Mr. Hector Fulgencio. The Fulgencio family is huge here in the Saginaw area, and Hector Fulgencio um, was a, is one of the handful of Gaito players that is still living, um, or is he deceased now? I, I'm not. I'm not really sure on that. But um, he, I think I think Hector passed away. Uh, he moved to to Texas a long time ago. Um, but uh, I know Jimmy. Jimmy passed away. George is still alive. George mm-hmm. Fulgencio. And George played and baseball was, as well, correct? He was a gallito. Yes, yes, he was. Yes, but you know they they talked about the idea that Hector Fulgencio was a major league arm pitcher, like that. I mean, he really had an arm for pitching, and that's why many of the games were won by the team because of his pitching. What do you remember yes, about that? Is that? Very true. Well, I just remember him being, uh, again, like you say, a real good pitcher, very strong arm. Um, there was uh, 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 another young man, I, I can't really call, recall his last name, but his first name was Willie. And he was also an excellent pitcher because he didn't throw a fastball, but he threw a curveball out of this world, and he had a changeup. And he had these uh, big league heaters, that uh, big league hitters uh, that belonged to at that time the uh, Draper Chevrolet um, teams. They were they were champions in the uh, uh, city league, and they were again they were big league heaters. 
And uh, for the first time when they first met Willie, they couldn't they couldn't touch him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gallitos won their first game against Drapers because they couldn't hit his curveball and his slow pitch. So there was, uh, again, there was all kinds of exciting things going on. And, and tell uh, me, you know, the players, eventually they grew a little bit older and, and they got girlfriends who got involved and started cheering for the teams as well as charging admission to Luna Field on Sunday. So it sounds like, you know, it really became a nice family affair event in America's pastime, favorite pastime. What do you remember about that? I remember, again, it was nothing but farmland, but when you went out there on a Sunday, you would see at least 50 to 60 cars, if not more, parked out there in the fields, and they were going to, you know, to watch the game. Some of them watched the game, from their cars, uh, but as time went on, they built bleachers. So the some of the uh, fans uh, came and sat in the bleachers. Uh, then they had uh, they they fenced it because they had problems with the cars being in, in left field, and the baseball players couldn't run out there and catch a fly ball because <laughs> they might run into a car. Yeah. So they put it, they put in a fence and said, okay, nobody can go past this fence anymore to keep the players safe. Um, and and what, what would they use the money that was raised there for? Was it to get new equipment, or, or what, what was that money, no, no. the admission charge no, that, they used? The, the, the uh, admission fee was collected by, the again, the young ladies that were uh, sweethearts of the baseball players, and they made a big celebration party at the end of the year. They rented a hall. They rented a band. They rented uh, caterers, and they had a celebration on the on the season that the uh, baseball gallitos, the the baseball players had uh, enjoying the game. Wow! Wow! That sounds that sounds like such a good time—a celebration of dancing and a band and music—and it's something that I think a lot of my listeners out there are yearning for today in this time that we live in the COVID crisis. But that's that's yes. awesome. That is so neat to hear that that's what they did in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that kind of uh, um, broke up El, the Los Gaito baseball team was the war, wasn't it? Wasn't there? Um, exactly, the draft. The draft. The draft, yeah, the draft came in and started taking the, the 18-year-olds once they became old enough to, to go into the service or eligible to enter the draft, they were being uh, recruited. Uh, you know, they didn't have a choice. They had to go. Your number your number came up, you had to go. You didn't say, I don't want to go. Or, you know, like later on, you became, uh, you had conscientious objectors, but not a, not, not on our teams. So, they, their time, time came, they, they went. And so that was like during the Korean War, wasn't it? In the 50s, the but, early 50s? Yes. Yes. And in, in the time at that time, you know, the manager of the African American team, which was called the Saginaw Sluggers, more history uh, in Saginaw with the African American team. Um, they didn't they go talk to your dad and uh, Mr. Luna about interchangeably, interchangeably the the baseball players. Well, what they came is they said, uh, Mr. Diaz, we know you have a a Mexican American team because. Your customers, many of them are Spanish-speaking, so you created a team for the Spanish-speaking. But we're also customers uh, of your grocery business, and we would like to have a 
black-sponsored uh, team, and the name of our team would be the Saginaw Sluggers. And Dad said, fine. So um, he uh, he agreed to uh, to sponsor the Saginaw Sluggers. And what happened, as, they, as you mentioned, the draft came along, and they started uh, selecting people for the service. Uh, they took our first baseman, but... We went to the Saginaw Sluggers, and there was a, a very tall black first baseman who was very good, uh, a player also, and his, they called him Eight Ball. I can't remember his his real name at this time, but he was called Eight Ball, and so Eight Ball became the first baseman. And, and uh, as time went on, um, the uh, second baseman. Uh, went in the service, the third baseman uh, or the shortstop. Different members went to different positions into the service, and they were being replaced with sometimes another Mexican-American baseball player, but a lot of times the immediate uh, replacement was a player from the Saginaw Sluggers. Wow. That uh, and, the, and, they, and the Gallitos and the Sluggers actually played against each other uh, like you know, practice teams. You know, they they when they went out to practice, they actually played against each other. It was the the Gallitos versus the Sluggers, so and then and crowds would gather out at at Potter School, or over here in uh, in in uh, between Carlton and Zawaki, there was a field uh, that belonged to a church, and that 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 became the home of the Saginaw Sluggers, and and uh, the Gallitos would come out and play against them, and big crowds would join. It was. It was a great day. Baseball was uh, not only a, a good pastime for everybody, but one thing we did notice that uh, of the ball players, both Saginaw Sluggers and the Gallitos, they all became very productive members of the community. They went in the service, they came back, they found jobs, and uh, you weren't hearing about uh, the first baseman just went to prison, or the second baseman just went to went to juvenile center. The, it it kept the kids out of the streets, doing something that kept them healthy and productive, and 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 um, leading leading good lives. In other words, they were they weren't getting in trouble. Well, that's awesome. Uh, that that's so that's so awesome to hear and to hear you say that the the bat boy of Los. Gaitos. What what do you what do you think of when you run into people like Bob Gomez or Mr. Ralph Guevara who was on the team? Joy, just uh, all the you know the there was the Gaitos won many a game, many many a game. It doesn't mean they won each and every game they ever played, uh, but it was nothing but joy traveling with the team because. Uh, Dad would uh, make sandwiches, uh, bologna sandwiches, ham sandwiches, salami sandwiches, and take cases of pop. And uh, so the kids were, you know, having sandwiches and drinking pop or Kool-Aid. They weren't out there, you know, yeah. trying to sneak a drink. Well, I, I have to wrap it up with you now. I thank you, Mr. Joaquin Diaz, for being a historian for our Latino community and remembering baseball. Today in Major League Baseball, Latinos make up 31.9% of players and clubs are increasingly looking for talent in Central American countries. And the MLB, like the Detroit Tigers, have celebrations mm -hmm. to honor Latino contributions 
of the game of baseball. And so I want to encourage you all to please stop in before April 18th to the Castle Museum to see the exhibit Play Ball in the Barrios and in the Big Leagues. In el Los Barrios y las Grandes Ligas, which recognize Latino contributions in baseball. Thank you, Mr. Joaquin Diaz. We'll see you again, and we'll be back with Mi Gente on Air. This is Mi Gente on Air on WSGW. You're listening to Be Hinte on Air on WSGW. The nation has turned its attention to the current situation at the U.S. border. We know this, including the rise in immigrant children in the U.S. government custody. Much of the conversation has focused on a supposed surge in arrivals under the Biden administration. But the current increase began well before President Biden took office. I'm going to repeat that. The current increase began well before President Biden took office. I want to take a look and hear from Janet Monguia, who heads up Unidos U.S., the largest Latino nonprofit advocacy organization. Well, I think everybody recognizes that President Biden inherited an awful mess. And really what was seen as a stain on our country when President Trump uh, initiated the zero tolerance policy that actually separated children from their families. So President Biden has asked for a little bit of time to sort things through. He's worked closely with Susan Rice, who's actually now domestic policy advisor, but who has international knowledge. She's met with many of us directly to assure us that they are trying to make sure they can move these children through as quickly as possible. But AOC, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez is absolutely right. We're gonna be very vigilant, we're gonna be very scrutinizing, and we hope that they will deal and uh, understand already the importance of how we handle these children. I do commend President Biden for making sure that right away there is a commission that was put together to reunite those families that were separated. You know, the Biden administration really has come under fire for this crisis at the border. There are thousands of unaccompanied minors already in U.S. custody, and many others have no alternative than to make the artist's track to America simply for a better life. And, you know, adults are coming, too, but they are not allowed in the country. The overwhelming majority of people coming to the border are being sent back. That's what our president said on his first press conference on March 25th. He said tens of thousands of people who are 18 years of age and single have been sent home. Let's hear from President Biden on that first press conference. The reason they're coming is that it's the time they can travel with the least likelihood of dying on the way because of the heat in the desert, number one. Number two, they're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. The way to deal with this problem 
And I started to deal with it back when I was a United States Senator, I mean, uh, Vice President, for putting together a bipartisan plan of over $700 million to do the root causes of why people are leaving. What did Trump do? He eliminated that funding. He didn't use it. He didn't do it. And in addition to that, what he did, he dismantled all the elements that exist to deal with what had been a problem and, and has been continued to be a problem for a long time. He, in fact, shut down the, uh, the number of beds available. He did not fund HHS to get people to get the children out of those, those border patrol facilities where they should not be and not supposed to be more than a few days, a little while. But he dismantled all of that. And so what we're doing now is attempting to rebuild, rebuild the system that can accommodate the, the, what is happening today. And I like to think it's because I'm a nice guy, but it's not. It's because of what's happened every year. So U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has a message to the immigrants. He says, do not take the dangerous journey now. Give us time to build an orderly, safe way to arrive in the United States and make the claims that the law permits you to make. So this is where we're at. This is the information that we gathered. And, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there in regard to this issue, especially from right the right side. Uh, liberals are, you know, are concerned as well because this is an issue. It's, it's a big problem at the border. But it's been there before. In 2019, there was a huge surge under President Donald Trump's administration. And now Joe Biden has inherited this problem. And yet we have the right-wing rhetoric, like Senator Ted Cruz, who has been very outspoken in regard to immigration. And he took 18 other senators down to the border, to the Rio Grande Valley, to witness and to post on social media what is happening from his standpoint and what he has to say. So let, let's listen to Senator Ted Cruz. All of us today witnessed the Biden cages. What is occurring here on the border is heartbreaking and it is a tragedy. You know, as we stand by the banks of the Rio Grande, we have an army of TV cameras here. It is striking that not a single one of these cameras is allowed in the Donna facility. We requested that media accompany us in the facility. The Biden administration said no. The Donna facility is a giant tent city built with a capacity of 250. It has nearly 4,000 people in it. We saw cages after cages after cages of little girls, of little boys, lying side by side, touching each other, covered with reflective emergency blankets, there was no six-foot space, there was no three-foot space, there wasn't a three-inch space between the children lined up one after the other after the other. And the Biden administration is taking people who are testing positive for COVID-19 and locking them in cages side by side. This is inhumane, it is wrong, and it is the direct consequence of policy decisions by the Biden administration to stop building the wall, to return to catch and release, and to end the stay in Mexico policy. So this is Ted Cruz, a Latino, who was more concerned about going to Cancun. Now, this is my little bit of rhetoric. More concerned about going to Cancun during 
the Texas storm that had so many people freezing in Texas. He wasn't concerned about them. He wanted to go to Cancun. And now all of a sudden he's concerned about immigrant children, that it's inhumane. My God, <laughs> when, when does this stop, right? So we have to look at the reason why they're still coming. You know, you, you hear both sides. You hear from the right. You hear from the left. And recently I was asked by a cousin of mine who asked, what is the difference between what this administration is doing compared to the last administration? And I think my answer would be that at least under this administration, children are not being taken away from their parents. They're not pulled from the breasts of their mothers. And yes, adult parents are actually having their children go north unaccompanied and look for a better life in America. They're sending their kids. So something must be up in these countries like Honduras as, as well as Nicaragua. Because why would a parent send their kids unaccompanied unless they were in dire straits? But we have to look at that problem from all aspects. And I'm going to try to just outline today what has been reported by the American Immigration Council, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in Washington, D.C. You know, and the group's mission is to work to strengthen America by shaping how America thinks about and acts towards immigrants in immigration. Because, you know, today there's such negativity where they are criminalizing people who are coming to this country simply because they are coming for a better life. And nobody, nobody can take that stand because we're all immigrants to this country. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, the only natives really are the, the, uh, the Indians, as we know. And it, it's terrible that um, we have this situation, but so many are coming because the countries that they're coming from are really terrible. So I want to just break it down for you a little bit. For many people, there's just not a good reason for them to return to their homelands. When we hear the rhetoric, you know, and they just say their parents should never have sent them in the first place. And there was good enough reason why they left in the first place. I mean, really, when you look at it, they have nothing. The main problem, pervasive violence, in, is, is so rampant in Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, sometimes even in parts of Mexico. This causes the parent to make desperate decisions. And my God, thank God, most of us in America, we don't have this problem. But in Honduras, two back-to-back -back hurricanes devastated homes at the end of 2020. There's no doubt that those hurricanes were going to spur migration. And you hear so little about this in the media because people don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear about other people that are in those dire strait conditions in their homelands. Remember Puerto Rico when, when that hurricane hit, Hurricane Maria, and then a devastating additional hurricane hit. In Puerto Rico, the island itself was devastated, almost wiped out, yet people didn't want to hear it. You had President Trump over there throwing paper towels at the mayor and didn't want to uh, acknowledge that there was a crisis in Puerto Rico. 
Why? Because, well, you know what? They kind of insinuated that Puerto Rico wasn't an American colony, and they weren't Americans. So that hurricane or two that they had down there in Honduras wiped out a lot of homes. And that, along with pervasive violence, it's just terrible the situation that they are in. And on top of that, you got to look at the whole idea there's economic devastation from the COVID-19 pandemic. So they're dealing with hurricanes. They've got pervasive violence from, you know, cartels and gangs. And uh, it's exasperated by the hurricane destruction. Strongly, it affects people's decisions to leave for America. And again, how can any parent send their child north unaccompanied? That is the answer. And now with Trump out of office, the idea that Joe Biden would be more welcoming is also affecting that decision. Everyone knows that if Joe Biden is in office, it's going to be, America at least, is going to be more welcoming than under the Trump administration to people of brown color. According to the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbeans, the pandemic pushed 22 million people into poverty in Latin America alone. 22 million into poverty, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered nearly 9,500 children without a parent in February alone, a 61% increase from January, and that number is up to 14,000 now in March. So, I mean, it's definitely a problem, and I think what is happening is the administration is saying, hold up, let us put in place some better policies that are more humane than what was in place under the previous administration that was not humane. And millions of dollars are spent to get ads out on the airwaves by uh, President Biden, as well as television, to dissuade people not to come. Right now, like, like I said, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, he said it, do not come. However, in weighing their uh, options, so many parents must still still feel it's better to send minors north for a better life. Can you imagine that being a parent and having to make that decision? But, you know, you've you've got nothing. Your your home has been uh, devastated by the hurricanes and you've got so much violence out there by gang members. And it's just a bad situation. And I think back, you know, of my family history, my great grandparents, they left Morelia, in the Morelia region of Michoacan, it was a, a, it was a town called Wandacareo. They left because the Chaparistas, they came into their little small village and they actually uh, wanted money that my great-grandmother was collecting from her husband, my great-grandfather, Sonovio, and he was working in the railroads in America and he was sending money back so that they could save up. And the Chaparistas, they came in, they wanted that money, they knew it was coming in, and my great-grandmother Cecilia, her father-in-law said it all costs, do not give them that money. And of course, we don't know the, the atrocities that happened at that time, but we do know for a fact that they uh, hung my great-grandfather's father, it would be his, my great-great-grandfather, they hung him. And they didn't kill him, actually, they, but they left him uh, very scared. And it was a tragedy that 
made my great-grandma Cecilia and great-grandpa Sonovio decide to leave their beloved homeland and come north, and they crossed the Laredo border in May of 1919, so over 100 years ago. And from that union and that crossing and settling in Houston and Charlotte and eventually to Saginaw, there's over 1,000 descendants here in the state of Michigan and throughout the United States. So they, too, saw the pervasive violence in their lifetime and headed north to Michigan for a better life. And that's exactly kind of what these immigrant children are doing today. Social media attention sometimes lays the blame on these parents. And you'll hear comments like, well, they shouldn't have sent their kids in the first place. How many of you have heard that out there on within your friends or your family or social media comments? And, and why should America let these people in? We cannot just have open borders. The rhetoric is rampant. And there's just a lot of blame on everybody's part. As heartbreaking as the situation is, politicians continue to point fingers. We hear it every day on the radio, on the newscast, you know, segments like Ted Cruz who goes down uh, to the border. I mean, when, when have you seen Ted Cruz go down to the border? The flow of humanity arriving at our front door, it just never stops. And migrants at the U.S. border truly is a problem. But we have to somehow figure it out and have a better immigration system because uh, the Trump administration dismantled every system in place with humanity and compassion, according to U.S. Representative Veronica Escobar. And she is a state representative down there at the El Paso border. You know, she, she continually says that there are fewer high-quality facilities and now, thank God, the Biden administration is working to bring them back online. But meanwhile, you've got the governor of Texas, Gregory Abbott, who is saying that the Biden administration must answer for enticing unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors into inhumane conditions that expose children to traffickers, to abuse and to terror. And we hear that all the time. The traffickers, sex traffickers, abuse. And, and it's, it's probably true to some extent. And it's a sad situation, but I think that if a parent is making that decision to actually send their kids north and they could, you know, be abused or uh, caught by uh, sex traffickers, it must be pretty bad in their homelands uh, to or in order for them to make that kind of decision and send their kids north. So... You know, no matter what is said, what the blame game is, for many people, there's just not a good enough reason for them to return to their homelands and not a good enough reason why they left in the first place. It's, it's, it's never, you're never going to change the minds set of those who don't believe that they have a legal right to actually come and uh, claim asylum. And, you know, there was a report out there about um, the hotel situation. Social media users, um, you know, they were spreading up substantial rumors about President Biden authorizing $89 million for illegal immigrants for temporary hotel rooms so that they could shelter them. Most of the times, posts like those are flagged to combat false information, and, and that one really was. In a company called Endeavors, a Texas nonprofit got the contract, reported it to Fox, but the claim contains some elements that are true but ignores critical facts that give a false impression. 
And part of the money also gives necessary services such as health assessments and COVID testing. And, and, and why, why would we, we want to give uh, COVID testing and uh, health assessments to immigrants? That, that, that's their thinking, you know. But even under the Trump administration, hotels near the border were used to house families who entered the country illegally. So that, that's just a bunch of hogwash. And those that I see posting on social media about the 89 million, I mean, come on be more vigilant in getting uh, truth out there instead of the false posts that sometimes are put in place. So, you know, we know that we've got a problem at the border and Biden has put our vice president kind of in charge. She's been tapped to kind of lead this crisis on immigration within our country. Let's hear from Vice President Harris. There's no question that this is a challenging situation. Uh, As the president has said, there are many factors that lead president to leave these countries. And um, while we are clear that people should not come to the border now, um, we also understand that we will enforce the law and um, that we also, because we can chew gum and walk at the same time, must address the root causes that, uh, that cause people to make the trek, as the president has described, to come here. There's no doubt that uh, Vice President Harris has her job ahead of her, and I think she'll do a great job. Um, There is a lot of talk uh, that under President Trump's administration that the the reasons uh, that they came to the border were uh, not as complicated and exasperated as I've reported today. But we know that with the backdrop of the pandemic, it makes everything really bad, even in our lives. Can you imagine our lives here with a backdrop of a pandemic and to be from one of those countries in Latin America that has, has just has devastation in their area, exasperated by a pandemic. So good luck to Vice President Kamala Harris. And I just want to say, you know, they talk about canceling culture. <laughs> My God, you know, it, it's funny because, um, The mere mention of immigrants seems to conjure up criminals because of negative connotations or rhetoric from the right. But remember, we are all descendants of immigrants, unless you are Native American Indian. And the fact that many Mexicans were in California and Texas when the border crossed them actually makes Mexicans more native to this land. Yep, I said it. And they talk about canceling culture. What about that, those cultures, the Indian cultures and the Mexican cultures? You see, I firmly believe the time is up. And with George Floyd's killing and with the attacks on Asian Americans and more good-hearted Americans are seeing racism for what it is today, they are questioning their own stance on bigotry. So this is why everyone is all up in arms and their time is up. Because Black Lives Matter, attacks on Asians is wrong. Latino immigrant negativity, as well as the LGBT and transgender communities, we've got to do better to welcome these people that make up the fabric of our beautiful American quilt that we call the United States. Until next time, we'll see you next week. I'm Larry Rodarte reporting here at Mi Gente On Air. See you next week.